This morning, we're continuing in our series in the book of Hebrews. And if you have missed uh, any of the past, I think, five weeks, I think this is Sermon 5 in Hebrews, you know, our sermons are posted online, and you can go and try to catch up with those. Uh, They include an outline uh, of what's attempting to be said on Sunday mornings. Um, so, So if you'd like to catch up, and you need to catch up, feel free to catch up that way. But this morning we begin in chapter 3 of Hebrews. And Hebrews, remember, we call it the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews really probably is best understood as a sermon letter. It's a letter, but not like any other letter, really. It's really a sermon letter addressing a particular people, a young Christian community, where some within that community due to persecution and hardship, were considering abandoning their faith in Jesus to return to a more comfortable, familiar, and culturally accepted practice of Jewish religion. The sermon letter is filled with hard words and warnings, but with hopeful words as well trying to encourage these people to persevere in the faith and to not hold on loosely to Jesus, to not hold on loosely to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of his letter. And just like in chapter 2 of verse 1, where he begins with the word, therefore, and then makes application based on what he just taught. Now in chapter 3, verse 1, he does the exact same thing. He says, therefore, and he's going to make application to his original hearers and to us based on everything he has just said. So give your attention. Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has great honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, Though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. 
So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hard words. Sobering words. Not just for them, but for us. Let's pray that God's word would be understood by us. Lord, this morning as we consider these words written by this author to those people, would you help us, Lord, to hear your voice today as you would speak these truths of the gospel to every one of us. So, Lord, help us to rightly understand, to rightly apply your word for the good of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some people, and I'm not going to name any names, some people can have this fixation of thought where they're just thinking about the same thing all the time. They've got a one-track mind. They can't not think about other things. So picture a child. I'm not going to name any names. Maybe somebody has a birthday coming up and they're a young child. And they're thinking about their toys and what they would like for their birthday. And they will rehearse for you. Every conversation becomes about, hey, you know, when my birthday comes up and we have my party, what about Thomas the Train? What about, and then name all the different possible trains that come with Thomas. So we know what it is for a child to have this fixation of thought, this focus where they're just thinking about one thing. Other people are not so much like that. Uh, Other people can be like Doug the dog from the movie Up. You remember Doug the dog, that beloved retriever, whatever kind of dog he's supposed to be, where he'll be talking and then all of a sudden, (gasps) squirrel, and he's totally lost his train of thought like dogs do, and he's looking for the squirrel. So we can be a people who have fixed thoughts, obsessive, compulsive emphasis, on one thing or something that's important to us. Or we can be a people who are very quickly distracted by a squirrel and lose our focus and lose our thought. So that kind of thinking about being focused and not being distracted by squirrels somewhat comes into play here with the author of Hebrews as he is speaking to these people who are thinking about, some of them, letting go of Jesus. Letting go of Jesus because it's hard to follow Jesus and to practice this Christian faith. And they're getting pressure and persecution from their immediate world. And some of them are like, you know, it'd be a whole lot more comfortable. It'd be a whole lot easier. We just kind of went back to living the way we lived, worshiping the way we worshiped prior to Jesus. And the author responds to that with the pastoral word that says, fix your thoughts. Focus. Consider carefully, is what he says in verse 1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Don't be distracted by the squirrels that are stealing your attention. 
Don't take your eye off the ball, so to speak, we would say. And so he gives them reason to fix their thoughts on Jesus, and he would give us the same reasons this morning. He says this, fix your thoughts on Jesus because he's our apostle and high priest. Now listen, when he says that, remember what those words mean. The apostle is the representative of God to man. And he is saying Jesus is the perfect apostle. He is the, uh, the, the ultimate apostle. He is representing God to man. But he's not just an apostle, the one true apostle. He's the one true high priest. Now what did the high priest do? The high priest represented the people to God. And so in that language of Jesus, he's, he's making this grandiose statement that Jesus is our salvation from A to Z, from pole to pole. He is the great prophet. He's the great apostle. He's the great high priest. And he's been making this argument, if you've been tracking in the previous chapters, that Jesus is greater than everything you've known in your practice of faith so far. The prophets were great. Moses, incredible. But he exceeds Moses. He is greater than Moses. And he continues with that same kind of argument now. He goes on and says that Jesus was faithful and greater than Moses in verses 2 to 3. And all this emphasis on Moses, know what this is. These Jewish people had a high view of Moses. So high that they didn't think Jesus was so important. They didn't see the need for Jesus. I mean, Moses is the one who gave us the law. And they were quick to want to return to the law and to their practice of Jewish faith. So this author is saying, all that esteem you have for Moses, it's misplaced. There's one who is greater than Moses. There's one who has exceeded Moses, and his name is Jesus. And then, with that same mentality, he says this. And Moses was great. He was faithful. He was a faithful prophet. He was a faithful servant in the house of God. And they would have said, Amen. He was faithful. What a, an amazing servant in the house of God. But then he plays that trump card. He says, but Jesus is a son of the house of God, who is the builder and the architect of it. So he's making that argument. He's saying, I understand your esteem for Moses, but you have to understand that Jesus has exceeded everything that you've known and practiced in your faith. So imagine this. It's not a very good illustration, but it's all I have. Imagine, or pretend, okay, what if I told you that I have a friend who works at Disney? He runs a vending machine in there. He said I could get into Disney for free. He's going to crack open the gate and let me into Disney. Well, that'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it? It's not a true story. It'd be a pretty neat thing. You'd get to go to Disney for free. It's pretty expensive, I understand, at Disney. You'd be pretty impressed. Paul's got friends in high places, a vending machine at Disney. But then what if I said, Walt Jr., and that's not really his name. Walt Jr. is a friend of mine. He's going to let me in, not just to the vending machine at Disney. We're going to have a whole park, and I'm going to have dinner at Walt Jr.'s house. It's not his name. I think it's Dwayne or something like that. Do you understand the significance of that? Well, it would be great to get into free at Disney with, with a servant at Disney. But when the son who oversees it all, and it's actually, I think, a grandson now, 
That's the kind of emphasis, the kind of shift of, oh, you're talking about something totally different now. That's what the, uh, the author of Hebrews is saying to his people. There's something far greater that you have not grasped, that you have not understood, and you need to consider it. You need to fix your thoughts on this. You need to not be distracted by the squirrels that are diverting your attention. So when persecution and suffering comes your way, when it comes my way, what are you fixing your thoughts on? Just in the way of honest application. What is it that you bank on and fix your thoughts on when things get difficult, when things get heated, when things get complicated in this world? Is it comforts? Is it pleasure? Is it the next fun thing on the calendar that diverts your attention from the misery of what you're living through right now? This is how most of us live. And and these are squirrels that distract us from fixing our eyes on Jesus and what we believe to be true in this life. These are the here and now things, the here and now comforts and pleasures that we can occupy ourselves with. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is reminding these Christians that you're to look forward and you're to lean forward in faith to what you know is your future and the one who is your future. So just in the way of application, and um, this is application for me, do you tend to live through hard weeks, difficult times by fixing your eyes on the next fun thing on your calendar? Or are you sobering yourself with gospel truth, fixing your eyes on Jesus? Christians are called to live one of those two ways. We tend to live the wrong one. But this morning we're reminded, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Secondly, the author says, beware unbelief. Beware unbelief. He says, beware holding on loosely to Jesus. That's what he says in verse 6. Now remember, back in chapter 2, verse 1, if you were here, he, he told us to beware, to not drift, to not neglect Jesus, to not let your salvation slip through your hands, was the imagery, that nautical term, that he used. Now in verse 6 of chapter 3, listen to what he says. He says, we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now more on that next week. I'm going to take two weeks to work through Hebrews chapter 3 because there's so much that needs to be said. And today's the big picture intro. Next week, we're going to talk about this conditional language, the ifs of Hebrews. This is true if you. Those are ifs that we tend to not understand, but they are part of what God's given us in his word. So next week we'll emphasize that. But for now, he says to hold on, not loosely. Beware holding on loosely. You must hold on firmly, he says. Secondly, he says, beware the hardening of your hearts. The hardening of your hearts. Now listen, I'm of the age now that I have these routine heart exams. Some of you do too. Others of you just wait. It's all coming. 
But the human heart, that fleshly organ, boy, you got to keep your eye on it. If it shows any indications of having problems, complications that, you know, they can catch it early, you can address things. So routine heart examinations tend to be a part of our lives. The author is saying you need to have routine heart examinations spiritually. Keep watch. Guard your heart. Watch your heart. Pay attention to your heart. Why? Because the human heart, the spiritual heart, can do one of two things. It does one of two things spiritually. It hardens and it softens. And what we know about the human heart, according to Scripture, is that it hardens easily, naturally, and quickly. Right? Our hearts will harden. They harden towards God and they'll harden towards each other. It doesn't take much to harden a heart. But hearts can soften as well. Not so easily and supernaturally. It's the work of God to soften our hearts to Him. And that's our hope right there, that God is at work, that He is softening our hearts, that He is keeping our hearts from hardening. And that's what the author is saying. He said, watch your heart. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so spiritually, we're, we're to do routine heart examinations on ourselves, in our family. And some of you know what that's like. You can tell when someone's heart is hardened towards you. You can tell when someone's heart maybe is hardening towards the Lord. There are evidences of it. And the author is saying, watch that. Pay attention to that. Don't let that go unchecked and not tended to. And then thirdly, he says, beware the deceitfulness of sin. And that's in verse 13. And here we're reminded of what we're told and what is shown throughout Scripture to us. And that is, Satan has a power and the human heart is inclined towards deceit, towards being deceived or beguiled, some translations will say. Being tricked, being misled being led to believe things that are not true or that are partially true. And he says to these people, watch your heart. Be very careful that your heart is not hardening from the deceitfulness of sin. And so I think in the way of application, we just have to think about that. Do we look at our hearts? Can we tell when they're getting hard? And when you know there's hardness in your heart, can you trace it to where you're being deceived? By blatant untruth or one of his more clever schemes through half-truths. Things that are somewhat true, partially true. And then we will just eagerly buy into it for whatever reason. The deceitfulness of sin is that powerful tactic of the devil or the own condition of our own hearts that makes the Christian life so hard because we're so easily duped, we're so easily deceived. We fall for it all the time. I came across a quote this week from Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a British journalist and a, a brilliant writer. Uh, I really like this quote. 
He was converted. He came to faith in Christ. And this is part of his autobiography, his reflection on his own Christian life and shortcomings. Listen to what he says and how it applies to our being deceived by sin to settle for lesser things, which is what we always do. Listen to this. He says, The saddest thing to me in looking back on my life has been to recall not so much the wickedness I've been involved in, the cruel and selfish and egotistic things I have done, the hurt I've inflicted on those I loved, although all that is painful enough. But what hurts the most is the preference I have so often shown for what is inferior, tenth-rate, when the first-rate was there for the having. Like a man who goes shopping and comes back with cardboard shoes when he might have had leather, with dried fruit when he might have had fresh fruit, with processed cheese when he might have had cheddar, with paper flowers when the primroses were out. Alas, so much of my life has been spent pursuing this fictional good and forgetful of the other, the real good, that is ever inspiring and ever renewed by God. Do you hear what he's saying? He, is, he looks back on his life and he, he's, he's embarrassed. That so often he has settled for the counterfeit pleasures of this world when the real pleasures of God were available to him. And don't we do the same thing with all of God's good gifts in this world? We fall for the trick. You know, Satan always baits the hook with something that's appealing. And it's, it's like a, a fishing lure. And I haven't fished since I was a little boy, but I do remember, I love going shopping for fishing lures. And I would always come home with the one, the spinner bait with the biggest metal propeller that would spin in the water and the big neon green, you know, whatever you would call that. And what did those things do? But they won the attention of the fish and they hid the hook that would be the undoing of the fish. And that's what Malcolm is saying here. He's saying, man, I have fallen for the bait. It's always got a hook and I'm embarrassed and ashamed of it. That's the deceitfulness of sin. That's the human heart. And that's what the author of Hebrews is warning these Christians about. Beware your hearts. You will be led astray. We always, always go astray, he says. We continue to be deceived and deceived so easily. So be careful to discern your hearts to see when they are hardening from the deceitfulness of sin. Now next week, I'm going to go into the details of, of the passage he quotes from the Old Testament, which is Psalm 95. It's a lesson in the negative, and it's a reminder that our spiritual ancestors, we have a lot in common with them. But that's an entire other sermon. I'll make one application to it, knowing that we're going to address it in full next week. But what he says is, you and I, we, we have spiritual ancestors. And just like we look like our parents and our grandparents, some of us do, boy, we're a lot like our spiritual ancestors. And just as their hearts harden towards God, so will ours. 
And so we need to be warned and reminded of their big mistakes, what they were prone to do. And he says the thing to beware are these kinds of things. Beware disbelieving in the God who has proved himself. Beware disbelieving the promises of God. Beware disbelieving in the power of God. Beware disbelieving in the provisions of God. And beware disbelieving in the proven faithfulness of God. That is what our spiritual ancestors do. And you and I do it too. And he warns us, do not, do not be one who grumbles and complains against God as if he has not been good to you. Now, don't we do that? I am, I am exceptional at grumbling and complaining about things. And that's what our spiritual ancestors did towards the Lord. They grumbled and they complained. Nothing he did was satisfactory. It wasn't good enough. And it says the Lord burned with anger to hear his covenant people speak of him as their covenant Lord, as if he had fallen short of his duties in the relationship. More on that next week, but one quote regarding it. This is from Richard Phillips in his commentary on Hebrews. He says, A complaining heart is an indicator of unbelief. When we grumble about God's handling of our affairs, it reveals that we doubt His wisdom and goodness, His power to lead and protect us, and in short, His worthiness to be trusted as our God. So guard your heart. Watch your heart that you are not a complaining and grumbling Christian, shaking a fist at God as if He is not good to you. The author warns us to guard our hearts, to watch out for these evidences of disbelief, and to instead consider Jesus. Which means, don't dismiss Jesus. Stop neglecting Him. Stop dismissing Him in the way that you think. So maybe to say the opposite of all this, maybe it would be helpful to say this. So what, what does it look like to not guard your heart? What does it look like to not do the things that God has said to do? What does it look like to dismiss Jesus? Well, the deceitfulness of sin and the subsequent hardening of the heart, according to the author, it begins with holding on loosely to the things God has said hold on tightly to. Does that make sense? So holding on loosely is the threat that we have to fend off. And instead, we are to hold on tightly. So what are the things he tells us to hold on tightly to? For you, for me, for the original audience. We've got to hold on tightly to God's Word. We've got to hold on tightly to God's worship. And we ought to hold tightly to God's people. Those are all the means of grace that He grows our faith, that He increases our faith, that He helps us to be healthy in our faith. And are we holding loosely to those things? That's the question. So in your own individual life or in the life of your family, do your own heart exam. 
Are we as a family, am I as an individual, am I holding on tightly to those things God has given me to strengthen my faith? His word, his worship, his people. Or am I neglecting those things? Do those things, God's word, God's worship, God's people, do those things get easily crowded out of my life by other important things? Now, in our American culture, the answer is a pretty obvious yes. We have so much that can crowd out the essentials. And they're the idols of our culture, and we all love them. But we have to guard our hearts, watch our lives, and ask ourselves, are these things, are we holding on loosely to the things we should hold tightly to? And are we holding on tightly to the things we should be holding loosely? Church, youth group, small groups, prayer groups, fellowship groups, scripture, prayer. We need to hold tightly to those things. But in our culture, we hold tightly, and in my own life, to things like kids' sports, sleeping in. The NFL, college football, vacations, bike rides, hiking, camping, sleeping. We hold tightly to those things. And we hold loosely to other things. And the author to Hebrews is saying, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Stay focused. Hold tightly to the things you should hold tightly to and hold loosely to the things you should hold loosely to. Again, in the way of application, who is in your life that will talk to you like this about these things? Who will tell you kindly and lovingly to reconsider how you are thinking and prioritizing the things of life? Who in your life loves you enough and knows you enough to be able to say, that's nonsense, you're not thinking well, you've got your priorities upside down? You're holding tightly and loosely to the wrong things. Is there anybody in your life who can encourage you in that way? The author to Hebrews wants us to be able to have that kind of honesty about our faith. The other night, we had a men's fellowship um, out at the barn. And just in thinking about this application, I thought, you know, I, I think that was an effort towards that. So we had about 15 guys. We had food. And we had one of our members, uh, a, a young dad, share from his own experience what is it like to try to lead a family with family devotions. What is it like to struggle with that? And where can we maybe find some structure and some success in that? And you know what all that was for the men that were there? It was just an effort to encourage faithfulness, to not give up doing the right things, keep at it, keep trying. And when you fail, try again. That's the kind of perseverance that the author of Hebrews is calling these Christians to have. And if you don't have those kinds of friends in your life who can encourage you, who can tell you your nonsense when you're living in nonsense, we need to build those kinds of friendships. We need to have those kinds of friendships. They're a part of the Christian community. They're supposed to be. And so we have much work to do. Go find those people, build those people, build those relationships that we can have this kind of growing and healthy faith that the author says we're to have. And then thirdly and lastly, 
The author in verse 13 says we need to encourage one another in that very way I just described. And he says, encourage one another monthly. No. Encourage one another weekly. No. He says, encourage one another daily. That this Christian faith is not a once a week thing. It's not a once a month, once a quarter thing. It's a daily thing. And we need to encourage each other in it. Especially in times of persecution and suffering, we need encouragement. We need encouragement to be faithful to Jesus. And we need encouragement to persevere through our trial and suffering. And that's their issue. And that's our issue. It will always be the issue of the church in this world, in this life. So, are you an encouraging person? Can you be an encouraging person? Now listen, encouragement looks a hundred different ways. Uh, We've joked about this. Archie Moore is going to encourage you one way, and I'm going to encourage you another. It's encouragement. You figure out who you are and how you can be a source of encouragement to the Christians around you. It might be with a hug. It might be with a high five. It may be with a spoken word of Scripture, the offer of prayer, the having of people over for a dinner group, supper club. This just has got to be organic to who God's people are. Otherwise, it's just too easy to slip away, to drift away. You know from your own life that accountability... Having people in your life is essential to anything that you do when it's a hard thing that you have to do. If you've ever had a gym partner, an exercise partner, anything like that, you know that you'll more likely show up to the gym when the other guy is there with you. Now, some of you are amazingly disciplined and you'll show up by yourself. Most people are not that way. And the Christian life needs that kind of encouragement as well. Encouragement to carry on, to persevere, to push on, to not grow weary, to not give up. In 1981, 38 Special taught us, those of you of a certain age, that if you really love someone, just hold on loosely. But don't let go. Because if you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. So that was my theme song this week. Younger people, go Google that. But the author of Hebrews is saying the opposite. He's telling us concerning the gospel and the person and work of Jesus that the opposite of that is true. So, today, if you hear God's voice, keep holding on tightly. Never think of letting go. Because if you hold on loosely, you're at risk and you won't grow. Wish I could have sung that for you. But it's true. He's saying, hold on, hold tightly. Don't let go. Don't let go. Persevere in your faith to the end. And what does it take to do that? What does it take to hold on and to persevere? It's the marvelous grace of our loving God that works in us through us, enables us. And as we hold on to Him, we find out that it's been Him holding us the whole time. Amen? Let's pray that this would be true. Lord, would You work this kind of faith in us?
a faith that would grasp tightly, that would not hold on loosely, that would hold on to the things you've told us to hold on to, and that we would be willing to let go of the secondary things that we don't need to be holding on to so tightly. Lord, do this, that our persevere would endure to the very end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.